To build the first temple, Solomon needed a work crew of nearly 200,000 people working for seven years. How could a few thousand returned refugees build the temple, let alone the entire city of Jerusalem? Well, the answer to that is they couldn't, but God could. How, you ask? God says in this book, you will not succeed by your own strength or by your own power, but by my spirit. We shouldn't discount the power of the spirit to accomplish the work of God. Now, it's a mystery how God works through human beings to accomplish what seems impossible, but he does, and he's been doing it for thousands of years, and he promises to do it until the kingdoms uh, come, and he can do it through you and through us, and so bear that in mind as we're going through this book. It may seem like just a lot of Jewish history, but it reminds us that a small group of individuals led by and filled with the Spirit of God, accomplished the work of God, uh, and, and we can too. Now, God raised up Haggai, the prophet, to encourage the Jews who returned from exile in Babylon in their rebuilding. Twelve books of the minor prophets, nine of them deal with the time before the Babylonian captivity. These last three, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, are after the return from Babylon. About 50,000 Jews came back with Zerubbabel. Haggai preached four sermons in four months, and then he disappears from the prophetic scene. Two months after Haggai delivered his first sermon, Zechariah began his prophetic ministry, encouraging the people to spiritual renewal and motivating them to rebuild the temple by revealing to them God's plans for Israel's far future. With this prophetic encouragement, the people completed the temple construction in 515 B.C. Like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Zechariah was a priest as well as a prophet. Zechariah's grandfather, Edo, was a priest who returned with Zerubbabel, making it likely that Zechariah was Haggai's younger colleague, a younger man. Zechariah contains more messianic prophecies than any other Old Testament book with the exception of Isaiah in its 66 chapters. Uh, Zechariah is quoted 40 times in the New Testament. It's an extremely significant book. It would be worth a read. You ever just sit down and just read an entire book of the Bible all the way through that's not uh, Philemon? (laughs) I love it, you know. It's a big thing in, in, you know, when you're studying in commentaries, whether it's Philemon 1, 1, or is it just Philemon 1, because there's only the one chapter. It's like mind-blowing. But anyway, it'd be great if you just get alone and read Zechariah all at once. Um, prophecies about Jesus unique to Zechariah are his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, the betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and the use of that money as blood money to purchase a potter's field. The book is arranged in three sections. There are different ways of outlining, of course, but it seems to fall into three sections at least. In chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 6, Zechariah shares a series of eight night visions that he received. In the remainder of chapter 6, he shares the crowning of Joshua the high priest, and then the rest of the book involves two prophecies concerning the future kingdom of heaven on the earth. The night visions apparently were all received February 15, 519 B.C., about six months after the construction had resumed. It was a wild night. 
uh, <laughs> a wild night of visions for Zechariah. And so in chapter one, verse seven, uh, we'll begin there. It says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the f- month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth. And behold, all the earth is resting quietly. In this first vision, Zechariah saw several horsemen in a grove of myrtle trees who reported that the earth was resting, and that is simply to indicate to the Jews that there was nothing to hinder them from rebuilding the temple. It was an encouragement that there was an angelic host, uh, there was an angelic guard, angels were on the scene. They said, hey, there's nothing going to hinder you from your work. Verse 18, then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so here Zechariah saw four horns representing nations that had helped destroy and disperse Israel, followed by four craftsmen representing the nations that would punish Israel's oppressors. You know, there's in, in the history, as we go through the uh, Old Testament history, you see that God raises up a nation to discipline his people. Then they always go too far. They become wicked themselves, and God then raises up a nation to discipline them. Once again, the implied message was that Israel was now free from oppression and therefore free to rebuild the temple. Chapter 2, verse 1, then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. And so now he sees a man measuring Jerusalem. An angel declared that Jerusalem would soon uh, overflow its walls, but that God would be a wall of fire protecting all its inhabitants. The angel of the Lord called on the Israelites still in exile uh, later in this chapter to flee uh, the lands of captivity for God would judge those nations. And so each of these visions, I mean, there is a lot more that we could say about them, but in the context of what's happening here, they are encouragements to the people to continue the work. Uh, Sometimes we grow weary in well-doing, do we not? 
Sometimes we just go weary, but other times in the work of the Christian life, uh, as we seek to minister to others, whether it's praying for someone who's dear to us that is unsaved or whether it's, uh, you know, full-time Christian ministry or whether it's just going to work and having a witness, we can grow weary in well-doing. And the people in, in Israel at this time, they were weary and they were overwhelmed. And as I said, that, you know, if you just looked at the task at hand, it was impossible and so God gives Zechariah these visions. He says, you can do this in my power and by my spirit. Uh, there's angels all around. I'm taking care of the nations. Just, just do what I've asked you to do. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. This fourth vision describes the high priest Joshua's appearance before the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself. Satan appears in his role as the accuser of God's people. Joshua, who represented the remnant of Israel who had come back, is disqualified from worshiping the Lord by his filthy attire uh, representing the defilement caused by Israel's past sins. But this change of attire to rich garments and a turban shows God's intention not only to cleanse the priesthood and the people, but also to bless and honor them by his sovereign grace. Uh, I don't want to get all psychological, but, you know, I'm sure the people thought, hey, you know, we've just come out of the Babylonian captivity. God was disciplining us for 70 years because our parents were losers. They were absolutely worshiping, you know, the devil practically and stuff. And so how do we know that we can walk in the grace of God? And so he gives them this beautiful vision of, you know, how, how, you, how you actually look. I mean, you know, the high priest was, I think I've explained before, had the most costly, beautiful garments going. I mean, you know, he would be on the cover of GQ every month if they had a magazine like that in Israel. But when God looked at the high priest from, a, you know, a thrice holy God sees him as covered with just filthy garments, but by grace he's able to make an exchange and give him robes of righteousness. And it becomes a picture for us in the New Testament of that, ex that exchange that Jesus talks about, that he takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness. And so none of us can stand before the Lord in our own strength and our own righteousness by our own works. But the Lord, because of what Jesus has done, can robe us, as it were, in these beautiful garments so that we can stand before him. Chapter 4, verse 1, now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who's wakened out of his sleep. I'm thinking, hey, this is great. Series of visions. Thanks, Lord. This is going to be great. I'll catch a few uh, Zs here, you know, uh, count some sheep or whatever. And now the angel comes back and wakes him up. So he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking. There's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the uh, stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Now a fifth vision of the lampstand and olive trees encourages Zerubbabel and Joshua, who's been brought into this scene. 
represented by the two olive trees, to trust not in financial or military resources, but in the power of God's Spirit working through them. Oil is ever a symbol of the Spirit. And the idea here is that the olive trees are providing a constant source of oil and supply uh, to the lamp of the temple. And so, you know, God is, is going to be powering Israel. Chapter 5, verse 1, Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there was a flying scroll And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and is width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. And so he sees this giant scroll, which is the law, flying through the sky, signifying to both present and future Israel that God is capable of removing sin from their land in order to fulfill his plans for them. And so um, as you read the rest of the chapter, you get this idea that God's law uh, and God's presence in the law is going to, is su- sufficient to purge sin and iniquity from the land so that they can enjoy his presence. Verse 5, then the angel who walked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. And so I asked, what is it? And he said, it's a basket that's going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here's a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Zechariah saw a woman whom he was told personified wickedness, thrust into a basket, and she's eventually carried away to Babylon. Like the previous vision, this symbolized God's ability simply and efficiently to remove sin from Israel, implying once more that there should be nothing to hinder the rebuilding of the temple. Chapter 6, verse 1, Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going up to the north country, and the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, and they might walk to and fro throughout the earth, and said, uh, and he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth, and they walked to and fro throughout the earth. He called to me and spoke to me, saying, see, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. In this final vision of the night, Zechariah saw four chariots drawn by horses of various colors coming from heaven and going back and forth across the earth. Uh, and and especially interested in the north. This suggests that Babylon had been finally and completely judged, and therefore the people should not be deterred from their rebuilding of the temple. And so in its context, a a night filled with visions that Zechariah was able to share, and by sharing them just encourage people who in various places in their particular concern about where the work was happening. And so, um, you know, lots of kind of, to us, sort of weird, you know, all these different things, horses, baskets, and all that. But people are ministered to in different ways, are they not? Something might really speak to your heart 
that doesn't speak to someone else's heart and vice versa. And so the Lord says here, here's just a, a slew of visions. As you share these, they're going to hit every possible concern and fear that, that the Jews may have that the work is going to stop. You remember when we did Haggai last week, they started well and then they got hindered in the work by opposition from enemies and even from the government, and they quit the work for many, many years. Uh, and, and so, you know, once you've been through that, you think, well, what's to keep me from stopping again? And so the Lord says, man, I've, cl- I've cleared the deck. There, there's, there's no nations that are going to stop you. There's angels all around. Babylon has been dealt with. I'm, I'm able to remove wickedness from the land as long as you're walking with me. He goes, just go for it day by day. In the remainder of chapter 6, Zechariah is told to make royal crowns, in Hebrew the word is plural, and to crown Joshua. Then the crowns are to be placed in the temple as a reminder of what God was going to do. First, if you read the chapter, Joshua receives a divine message that the branch, someone called the branch, would build the temple and be glorified and rule. Now the building of the current temple was already assigned to Zerubbabel, and it's called Zerubbabel's temple. But the Messiah would build the temple associated with his earthly kingdom of righteousness, a future temple that was prefigured by Zerubbabel's. And so truth is, the temple they were going to build was not as glorious as Solomon's temple in one sense, not outwardly. Uh, It was just as glorious, if not more so, than Solomon's temple in the sense that God's presence was there. I mean, that's all you really need to have the glory of God, right? It doesn't really matter. You could be in a living room. You could be outside. uh, You could be inside. You could be at the Taj Mahal. It doesn't matter uh, as long as God's presence is there. And it was prefiguring the future millennial temple uh, that the Lord would occupy. In chapter 7 and 8, Zechariah responds to questions about whether or not the returned exile should continue certain ritual fasting that they had established. He answers with a series of four messages that take us forward to the joy of the future kingdom in which fasting will become unnecessary. And so Zechariah is encouraging them to joy. Chapters 9 through 14 are two prophecies. They're called burdens, but they're essentially prophecies. The first one in chapters 9, 10, and 11 predicts the rejection of Jesus Christ in his first coming, the rejection of the Messiah. And then the second one in chapters 12 through 14 concerns his second coming to establish the kingdom. One commentator called chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, and I quote, one of the most messianically significant passages of all the Bible You recognize it. It's rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Summarizing Zechariah, one commentator Uh, One commentary, rather, reads, Zechariah has been called the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. Messianic prophecies and detailed descriptions of the dawning of the messianic kingdom give the book an exciting quality. Zerubbabel and Joshua represent the Messiah in his royal and priestly roles, reflecting on how God's sovereign program of redemption unfolded in the life and ministry of Jesus should lead to eager anticipation of the completion of his plan expressed in celebratory worship and zealous obedience. Now, Zechariah's vision of the four lampstands forever uh, 
supplying oil gives you the eternal perspective on the supply of the Spirit within and through individuals and groups to accomplish God's work on the earth. Uh, It does so in the simple language of symbols. Uh, In context, the congregation of Israel is represented by the symbol of the lampstand. The individual Jews are represented by the symbols of the two olive trees. The work of God is represented by the light revealed by the lampstand. Congregation of Israel, under the individual leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, was to reveal the light of the glory of God to the surrounding nations and to the whole world. Uh, Possible because God supplied his spirit to them and through them represented by oil. Without ignoring that application to Israel, we can also apply it to the church because in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the church is symbolized by what? The lampstand. Jesus tells us in chapter 1 that the church is the lampstand. The congregation of each church under the individual leadership of its pastor is to reveal the light of the glory of God to the whole world, only possible if God supplies His Spirit to us and through us. And that's why, again, we read in Zechariah 4, 6, an absolute favorite verse of ours uh, and, and a favorite verse of Calvary Chapel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Might is a word often used to describe strength, such as strength in numbers, uh, a collective strength. Power is a word often used to describe strength without numbers uh, in a kind of a, a personal strength as an individual. And what the Lord is telling us is that neither the strength of our numbers as a group nor our personal strength as individuals can ever hope to accomplish the work of God. God's work can only be accomplished by God's spirit. So what does this mean? Uh, It means a lot of things, obviously. Um, A lot of times people say, why can't all the churches get together? And and let's just get all the Christians together because if we all got together, we would be what? Mighty. Well, no. I'm not saying we shouldn't all get together. That'd be great as long as everybody did what we wanted to do. Hey, when churches get together, it gets wild. You know, the Pentecostals take over. They just start, they tongue you to death. You know, they just, they say, let's pray. And then it's like, man, I can't, I can't figure out what I'm saying because everybody's praying in tongues. It's true. I mean, I don't mind that. I believe in the gift of tongues, but man, it's crazy. But there's, it's not, it's just not true that the more Christians you have doing something, the more powerful it is. Because it's not by might, it's by the, by the Lord. Neither is it by power. It's not me being the world's greatest Christian. I can't get up at three in the morning and spend two hours with God and, and, you know, and then think that I'm going to be able to accomplish anything that I want to do that day because I've, I've charged up. It's just as likely that it's the day I fall out of bed because my alarm clock, you know, hit my head or something that God's going to use me to show me it's not by power, not my power anyway, it's by his power. And so, uh, and it's hard to describe. I was sitting here before the study, I thought, okay, Lord, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by your spirit. And immediately our mind goes to give me the five steps or the three steps or the 12 steps. Give me the steps by which I get this power. And then you sound like that crazy guy in the book of Acts who says, hey, I'd like to buy this power. 
This sounds great. And uh, Peter says, man, you're in so much trouble. <laughs> Get out of here, Simon the sorcerer. And uh, so, you know, the, the thing about the Spirit, I don't want to act like it's, you know, un, unattainable because the Lord says it's not by might nor power, but by my Spirit. But it has to do with our relationship with God. We just, we have to spend time with the Lord. We have to get to know the Lord. And we have to believe that we're, we can't really do anything mighty or powerful apart from him. We have to be led by him. We have to follow him. One of the things that it means to be a witness, obviously, is to, uh, to see what the Lord has done and is doing and then talk about that. Isn't that what a witness does in court? They don't talk about things that are going to happen. What did you witness tomorrow? Nothing. Tomorrow hasn't come yet, unless you're some crazy sci-fi channel fan. But anyway, um, and so they say, what did you witness? I saw this. And so the idea of us being a witness is to see Jesus. Okay? How did Jesus operate? What did Jesus do? How did he talk? Who did he minister to? What was his basis? Those kinds of things. And to spend time with him and get to know him and say, Lord, I want to do things the way you did things. Well, I only did what my father told me to do. I, I set aside, I was fully God and I'm fully man, but I set aside the powers of my deity and acted as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you do that? Yeah. I can't do it very well, but uh, that's what I want to do. And so we get to know Jesus, and the more you get to know him, in one of the passages it says we see through a glass darkly, but we're seeing him. He's always coming into greater focus. And so if you want to be uh, a person who has this, uh, you know, uh, spirit of God and is led by the spirit of God, you, you need to spend a lot of time with Jesus, and you need to, I think, oh, a big word came into my mouth, issue. Issue is a word, E-S-C-H-E-W, S-C-H-E-W, is how it's spelled. But and Pam always asks me how to spell something. I go, it's E-S-C-H-E-W. That's how issue. So you should issue this idea that, that you can do anything on your own. And, and you think, oh, yeah, I, I believe that. And most of us don't. And a lot of, we really do think that we're, you know, I, I read a lot this week, and I prayed a lot this week, and I studied a lot this week, and I'm, I'm on my spiritual game this week. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of that stuff. We should do all of that stuff. We should do it because we want to do it. We get to do it because it's exciting, because that's the life that we've been blood-bought into. But it shouldn't give us the idea that I'm all hyped up now to do whatever I think I, I need to do. We still need to just be absolutely led by the Spirit of God. But when we are, whether many or by few, whether we're 200,000 or whether we're 50,000, as they were, we can do the work that God wants us to do. Whether we're building a crystal cathedral or whether we're just hanging out in our own building here in Calvary Hanford, the important thing is that God is present in our midst, in our hearts and in our midst, because that's where the glory is, right? Amen. Praise the Lord.